let's open up in prayer, and then we'll uh, we'll kick off. That's not. Don't worry. That's not for the hour mark. Um, that'll be for tomorrow, probably. Uh, let's open up in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much uh, for allowing us to gather together that we could spend time in fellowship with one another and time uh, in fellowship with you. I pray that you would be with the sick among us, the sick who were not able to be here, Lord, uh, that you would pour your blessings out on them, that you would give them strength, uh, that you would give them encouragement, that you would help us as a church body. Uh, be encouragers to them, Lord, that we would take church to them um, when possible. Uh, I thank you, uh, Lord, that you would use me, uh, that you would allow me to preach your word as unworthy as I am. I I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, move uh, in the message tonight, that you would speak to hearts here. Um, Lord, as as we kind of wrap up this this section of the text tonight, I pray that you would give us a deeper and fuller understanding of the depths of the depravity that the lost find themselves in, and that as Christians who have been rescued by your grace through the work of Christ and our faith in it, that we would reflect on these passages and passages like it, understanding where we have come from um, and and that we would rejoice in the fact that you would call us to you uh, though we were once uh, enemies of you that you would uh, do everything necessary to make us your friends and I pray Lord for those who would hear this tonight if there were to be anyone who uh, has not come to know you in this way Um, that your Holy Spirit would draw them and lead them to you uh, through the preached word, uh, that they could could know you uh, and and know your love and uh, know the power that is uh, found in the resurrection and the life of Christ. Uh, Lead us now into your scripture, uh, that we would be uh, reproved by it, that we would be led by it, and that as Christians we would be further sanctified. Uh, by the Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's, uh, it's in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Um, so tonight we're going to be wrapping up a major section in the book of Romans. For the last couple of weeks, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, and kind of pushing forward to where we find ourselves in chapter 3, we've been dealing with the problem of sin. And tonight, we're going to find ourselves in some ways um, reiterating things that we've done along the way, right? So what Paul is doing here, um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. We're going to start back, we kind of touched on chapter 3 verse 9 last week. We're going to start back there and then we're going to push through up to chapter 3 verse 20. And we're going to end at verse 20 tonight and the next time we get together We'll pick up from there. So what we're going to find in these verses between 9 and 20 here is Paul giving a summary of all that he's kind of told us up to this point. Now Paul's been laying out along the way the problem of sin for the Greek or the Gentile as well as the problem of sin for the Jew. He's shown us the way that sin will suppress truth, whether it be 
in the created things or whether it be uh, in the truth that He's given us through His Scriptures and the way that our sin will suppress that and manipulate that. And uh, Paul is going to now summarize what the purpose as well of the giving of the law is all about. So we're going to find out uh, one, just reviewing for the large majority of this, and then we've touched on this in the past, but I want to make mention of it just so that we can, uh, just so that we can see it and be clear about this this one particular truth. Where does the law fit? Right? Why did God give the law? What was the purpose of the law? Last week, we kind of touched a little bit on the advantage of the the Jews or the the value of circumcision and what was this advantage that we were looking at. We find that the Jews have the oracles of God. That's God's Word, um, including in that the law. And we're going to find out what, uh, what that's all about uh, here tonight as well. So um, we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 9. We're going to just start reading there. And we'll probably jump back a little bit as at, at, at a time to look through this. So Paul is here going to be quoting, and there's quite a few passages of text, probably most of your Bibles. If you were looking the footnotes as we go through uh, verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, if you were to look in the footnotes of your Bibles, you're probably going to find references to the passage of text in the Old Testament that Paul kind of chains together here to give us this one kind of final summary of what the problem of sin is and what that means for humanity as a whole. So I'll let you kind of go back through the Old Testament. So one thing that I want to point out here is the fact that Paul is in writings of the Scripture that we find here and have in Romans that Paul here summarizes everything by using Scripture itself. So I think that's a, that's a good approach for us if we're trying to discuss truths about God's Word that we should always use Scripture in doing this and bringing this out. And Paul does this in a very, uh, a very beautiful way as he kind of chains a couple of different passages together to really get the point across about just how bad sin is, right? So let's, let's start reading chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. Right, So I'm going to be asking questions again as we go through this. So I want you all to kind of go ahead and get comfortable. I'm going to give you a couple of softball questions up front so you can kind of get back in the groove of, of answering these things. Right. So we've already charged one particular thing. Both Jews and, Gent- or Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Who's under sin? Who? It, is anyone excluded from this? Right? I want, I'm going to ask it a couple of times more because I want you to really think about this. Right? I want you to think, because I want the weight of the implications to rest on us tonight as we're thinking about what it means for everyone to be sinners. Right? I want us to think about that. And I want the weight of the hopelessness of being trapped in sin to be something that's real for us. Right? Because that's what Paul's doing. And one thing, as we 
as Christians go out into the world, because you're coming in here to be equipped so that you go out into the world and do what? Make disciples, right? You come into the church, we edify and uplift one another, we encourage one another, we build each other up, we teach each other, so that we can go out and do what? Teach others, make disciples, fulfill the commission that's been given to us by Christ Himself. So you come in here, And then you go out, and you go out, and you should be teaching and preaching the gospel. And one thing that I don't want us to miss, so oftentimes we want to start the gospel, we want to start immediately off with the gospel, and we want to just land on Jesus, right? Because He's the final, He is the good news, right? But one thing that I don't want us to forget or to miss as we are going out and preaching the gospel is what we've tirelessly over the last few weeks been digging through here is that there's a problem. And what is that problem? Sin. More specifically, I'm going to ask you again, what is that problem? I hear me, and that's good, right? Now, you're a Christian, right? So God's solving, He's solved and solving the problem in you, right? But for the lost world, the answer is, you are the problem. Right? So when we go out and preach the gospel, and y'all, if, if you've ever talked to somebody about Christ, you've probably run into this situation where people tend to think they're okay. Right? Like if I stand before God, like you kind of get this scenario where I, I weigh my good, I weigh my bad. All in all, I'm a good person. I doubt that you would run into many that would say otherwise. Right? Most people consider themselves to be good people. So, good people, do they need saving? Okay? Good people don't. Okay? But what does Christ say about good people? That God alone is good. Right? God alone is good. So, and this is the thing. When people say, I'm good, I don't want you to go and just crush them, but I know you're not. <laughs> lead, them to know, lead them to the point to where I say, are you good people? They're going to be like, no, I'm not. Right? But it starts, the gospel starts fundamentally with the problem. And the good news is the solution to that problem. So when we start presenting the gospel, let's not skip the problem where we may find ourselves with people who don't understand they need a solution to that problem, right? So as we dig into this, and as you go out and you're teaching and preaching the gospel, whether it be in your families or whether it be in your workplaces or wherever it is that you go, you should always be making disciples everywhere. That should be clear, and, and it, should, it will be made more clear as we dig further and further into this book, right? As you go out and you're presenting the gospel, I don't want you to neglect the problem of sin. The problem of the sinner, right? And Paul does not pull punches in this. Sin is real, and it has devastating effects, right? Do we understand that? That sin destroys everything that it touches? Do we get that? Do we understand that? That sin is a problem? It's not just an issue that we need to work out, but it's the problem and sinner's sin. Right? So we need, in presenting the gospel, 
to make clear as gently as we can that sin is a problem. Especially when you stand before God. Right? That when you stand before God, there are no good people. There are sinners. And God is good. And the most frightening thing that a, that a lost sinner can hear is that God is good. Right? Now, we don't think that, but in fact, that is the case. Right? Because if God is good and God is just, then what must He do to sin? What must He do if He's good and just? Punish sin. So, if sin is in the way, if sin is in fact real and it is real, then it is a major problem. Right? So, let's, let's push on all are under sin. What does it mean then to be under sin? Right? The last part of chapter 3, verse 9. Under sin. What does that mean? I want us to think about what it means to be under sin. Bondage of sin. Now, this is absolutely right. Slavery to sin. I, I want you to think about the way that you tend to think about your sin. You think of your sin as being under you. Right? Does that make sense? Like you think that you are in control. Right? If that were the case, then sin would be under you. Right? But that's not what God's Word says about sin. What does God's Word say about sin? That you are under sin. What does that mean? That you are controlled and dominated by sin. Now, of course, I'm, ex I'm, I'm saying this of the loss. When we're hitting through this piece here, what we're going to find, the truth that we're going to find out here, is that in fact that we have been freed from the dominion of sin as Christians, but the lost under sin, enslaved to sin, bound to sin. Can the sinner free themselves from sin? This is, no, is the answer. The sinner cannot free themselves from sin. Why can they not free themselves from sin? All of this should be reviewed from things that we've kind of been hitting along the way. Why can the sinner not free themselves from sin? One, they do not want to free themselves from sin. The desire of the sinner is to sin. Right? The sinner is not looking for freedom from the thing that they desire, the thing that pleases them. Right? The sinner is under sin, enslaved by and bound to sin. And this causes so much destruction along the way. So we're going to see kind of the diagnosis that we find when we start looking at, thinking of, and considering sin and the effects that it has had on the human race as a whole. So we've already seen this word, all all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. We're going to see that, that this is just added to and added to as we go through this text here. We're going to find that there is no loophole, that, that there is no exception to this. right? And if all are under sin, then what hope do they have of freedom? 
I want us to think about these things. Without God, nothing. They're not... And, and here's the thing. Let's go ahead and dig into Scripture. None is righteous. Okay, in case none is not a, an all-inclusive enough word for you, none is righteous, no, not one. I'm going to read through chapter uh, 3, verse 12 real quick. We're just going to start and, and kind of take this one section. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the first thing that I want us to think about as we're digging into this is that there are no exceptions to this. That this text applies to every human being that ever was, that is today, or ever will be. The human race under sin, bound to sin. Right? All your kids who you look at when they're really little and you think they are going to be sinners like you. No one excluded from this. The kids over in Africa or in Honduras or wherever you would go, all of them, sinners. What if they don't hear the Gospel? What hope do they have? What hope does your family have? What hope does your children have if they do not hear the Gospel? None. Is there any of your kids, any of your relatives, any of your friends, co-workers, the people that you run into from day to day, any of them that are going to be excluded from this problem, no, not one. No, not one. None is righteous. As we've been digging through this, we've looked and, and kind of considered this idea of this the light of the knowledge of who God is. That God has revealed Himself from creation to the written law that He's passed down by the prophets. Right? That He entrusted to the Jews. Whether you knew a little or you were ignorant of it, or whether you knew it and thought you kept it, none is righteous. The rich young ruler steps in. What did he say? What did he say? What did he claim about himself? Jesus is like, keep the law. He's like, dude, I've done that. I got that check. Jesus is like, one thing you like. <laughs> You're ignorant. <laughs> There's only one good. And you don't even know that I'm Him. Right? That's what Je when Jesus says there's only one good and that's God, Jesus is not saying, hey man, don't even include me in that. He's making clear that the guy coming to Him, and like I got the law, I kept that thing, knows not who is right in front of Him. Because there's only one good. You're telling Him. Like the rich young guy. That would be like, like Jesus standing right here and me coming to Jesus being like, I'm good. Jesus would be like, shh. Please, I know you all too well. I'm good. You're far from it. There's no exception to this. None is righteous. No one understands. 
So here's the thing. We've, we've looked at this, and, and, and we've dug from over in chapter 1, where what does sin do? What does sin do? It suppresses what? Truth, whether it's in the created order, or whether it's in God's Word. Sin does what? To all truth. Suppresses it. I want to tell you this. You can know a lot. You can know a lot. But if you deny the source of truth itself, you are lacking in all understanding. And when you are in sin, and you find truth, and you deny the source of that truth, this just speaks to your lack of understanding. So what does God say about the state of Fallen humanity that no one understands. No one seeks for God. I want us to think about that. How many of you in here sought for God? Mm-hmm. How many of you in here? He sought you. We have this idea that we that we somehow went out looking for God and found God. I I want you to know that if you are a Christian, and this applies across the board, you are a Christian because God Himself came down from heaven not because you went up to heaven. You did not seek Him. He came seeking you. This is a fundamental truth that we need to understand. You do not seek God first. God sought you out, Christian. You are a Christian because He came looking for you. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that because what does God's Word say? No one seeks for God. So who seeks for God? So those people who have never heard the Gospel, what of them? Those people who will die today never having heard the Gospel, what of them? What of them? Uh, You can answer back. We're ashamed probably. Because we know what of them. People dying today. They did not seek God. You say, well, well, maybe if they gave it a good effort. This is kind of the way that the world will try to justify this. Maybe if they gave a good effort, that God will accredit that good effort. So if they found that good effort in Muhammad, well, maybe God will say, that's, that's the light that they had. And we're just, we're going to say, you tried Good job. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you count. Maybe they tried for, and, and and the best thing that they could get was was seeking after the teachings of Buddha. And maybe they chased after that very hard, and they were very peaceful people or whatever. And they died. And we think, well, maybe surely God will honor that. They tried. They they sought him. They just didn't have the. They just didn't have the right. You know, they were just born in the wrong place in the wrong time. But God knows the heart. Yes, friends, He knows the heart. And He's declared that no one seeks Him. 
Do we get that? Do we understand that? Do we see then that that is the reason we take the gospel out? We say, man, if we just make it more friendly, maybe people will come. They're not coming. They're never going to come. They're never going to come. And one by one, we will die. We're going to get old. We're going to die. Maybe some of you die before me. Maybe I die before some of you. And if we don't go, one by one, Every preacher that stands up here will just see less and less. You know why? Because they don't seek God. We take God to them. I don't know that we get that though. I don't know that we understand the importance of that. I don't know that you get that there may be someone that you work with that you can be the light to them. Right? You can show them the truth. You can present the gospel to them. Because they're not looking for it. They're not seeking after it. This is what Scripture tells us. Look and see if you can find a loophole in this. No one seeks for God. Does anyone seek for God? Does anyone at all seek after God? Then what will they find? Death and hell. The problem of sin is real, friends. It is so real. Every day, people dying, having never heard the gospel. What of them? Death and hell. Why? Because they, like everyone else, are sinners. And they do not seek God. That's Scripture. All have turned aside. What does that mean? I want us to think about that. So we see this all, no one, none. All have turned aside. Where have they turned? They're not seeking God. They're not turning to God. Then where have they turned? To sin. To Satan. To the world. To their own desires. To their own pleasures. God gave them up. To a debased mind. To do what ought not be done. This is a review, right? Back over in Romans chapter 1. All have turned aside. Is there any exclusions? Any exemptions? Anyone that you know that that does not apply to? Anyone in the world that that does not apply to? Is there anyone that we can look on a map and say, you know, we don't have to go there because they don't need the Gospel. They have hope in themselves. Is there anywhere? No. Nowhere. Why? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. I want us to understand this. That if we are seeking and doing anything other than the will of God, and the sinner cannot do the will of God, then we are worthless. Go back, 
listen to the Ecclesiastes stuff. We've covered this. Right? We've covered this. No one does good. Who does good? It should be easy at this point. Who does good? Who does good? Who does good? God alone is good. No one does good. No one. Now, I want us to think about this for a second. I want us to think about this for a second. Okay? We got a bunch of parents in here. Who raised their kids? Can I get a raising of hands? Who raised their kids? All the parents in here. Right? So your kids needed to eat. And what would you do? You did what it took. Right? You fed them. They ate. Was that not good? Was it not good? So I hear, yeah. Was it not good? What do we think? Let's get a conclusion. She didn't die, so it was a good thing. Right? They're still alive? Was that not a good thing? Was that, so then is Scripture lying? So... So it's a necessary thing, but you didn't have to. You didn't have to. You didn't have to feed your kids. Like you might have got put in jail, or they might have got taken away. But there's a lot of people. You go down to Honduras. Whoever's going with us, you can go down. You're going to see a lot of kids whose parents didn't. Right? And we would call that bad. You take care of your kids. We call it bad. So the other end of it, you take care of your kids. What do we call it? Good. No one does good. Y'all not see the issue there? Y'all not see where Scripture says no one does good, and how many of you feed your kids and you think that was a good thing? Right? And, and Adrian, you clean up after our kids, and our kids, when they eat, it's like bombs of food go off, and you cleaning up after the kids. That's so good. <laughs> no one does good. So how do we, how do we, how do we, how many of you know people who do not know God who feed their kids? Lots. And that's good. That they feed their kids. Right? Yes. So how do we how do we how do we make that line up that scripture says no one no one does good. Yet we look at things and we say, "Well, that's that's good." And the lost would say, man, I don't have to know God to do good. If a lost person were to give to charity, is that good? Is it good? Is it? We don't know what to say. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Air with your gut on that. You know, like, is, is, is giving to charity good? Yeah, it's good. It's good. Here's the, here's the thing that I want us to get at when we, start, when we start looking at this. So it says that no one does good. And I want to tell you, the people do good, and that no one does good. <laughs> We're going to dig into some definition here. What does it mean, then, to do good? Right? What does it mean to do good? To abide by the law? Like, if you don't break the law, that was good. Right? Like, we would consider a good person somebody that's law-abiding. Right? You're breaking the law, we could call you, you know... Bible put you in jail, whatever, right? So this is kind of, and I want you to throw some stuff out there. What is it? What is, what do we consider things to be good? Is there like a, like no one does good 
So no one does good for their... Like no one's goodness accounts to righteousness. That doesn't make you good. Or maybe you couldn't do enough good things. Like you can't do enough good things. Well, what if you do more good things than bad things? So I want you to ask yourself this question. We've covered this in, in some ways in past, in past messages. But I want to kind of bring it back out for you to think about again. Is that the, the very definition of good is, is founded and based in the existence and being of God Himself. Right? That if you want to, if you want to look at what it means for something to be objectively good. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some words out there so y'all... Y'all kind of brace yourselves and we're going to think about them. If I need to redefine them, we'll redefine them again for you. So, subjective good versus objective good. If something is objectively good, it's really good, right? What would that be? It's not good to kill, right? So, not killing is good, right? So, what Hitler did was bad, right? What, Hitler, what if Hitler had a one? Because here's the thing, Hitler thought it was good. Correct? He's not doing it if he doesn't think that it's good. Right? So, Hitler's version of good was different than a Jew's version of good in Nazi Germany. Correct? Their versions of good is what you would, co- what you would consider subjective good. Right? It's good to you, or it's good for you. Right? It's what you feel about good. Right? Oh, without God, God is the, is the foundation and the bedrock of what it is to truly be good. And if you reject the being and existence of God, all goodness loses its goodness. Right? Follow me here. All good things come from where? So you feed your kids and you reject that your ability to feed your kids is a gift given by God. And what is that? Evil. Do you follow me there? All good comes from God. And to reject that, no one does good. Especially the one who rejects God Himself. Especially the one who seeks not God. Who is unrighteous. Because goodness itself is founded and based in the existence of God. So when we reject God, all that we do is tainted. Do you get that? That's a hard sell. This is why the Holy Spirit is needed. <laughs> this is why the Holy Spirit is needed, right? No, no, no. I'm not saying that for them, that it is evil for them to feed their kids. Yeah. If, what I'm saying is that if there was no God, it would be neither good nor evil. Right? That we cannot, without the existence of God, have objective morality. That's the idea. Right? That it would be no more good or evil for you to say, I'm not feeding my kids. Because I need that money so that I can do more with it. Right? We find all the time in nature where parents will have kids and just leave them there. Fend for yourself. Do we call that evil? Right? Like, lay some eggs, go do your thing. Let the kids survive. Do we call that evil? No, then why would we call it evil if we did it? If we said, fend for yourself. 
Why would we call it evil? Do you, do you see? Do you see? Because it's been written in our hearts. And it's been given by the command of God. So we can't just say, well, we would just do that. Right? Like, I would just feed my kids. Duh, that makes sense. Look at the animal kingdom. I can point out to you hundreds that don't. Right? So if there's no God, you're no different from the animals. There's nothing binding you to anything. No God, no objective morality. Yeah. No morality that's founded and based in something outside of you and your own thinking. So subjective morality gets you where Hitler's at. So if Hitler wins, kills everybody that doesn't believe what he believes. So now you live in a world completely different than the world that you lived in. Hitler has eradicated the Jews. Anyone who thought that it was evil what Hitler did, he killed them. Now you live in a world in which Hitler rules and everybody that lives thinks that killing the Jews was good. Everybody thinks it. Let's imagine this world. Was it evil to do what he did? Not if there's not a morality that's based outside of the herd morality that we as people have. Right? Because in that world, you're living in a world where everyone thought it was good. Right? So what would that mean of it? This is where last week when we talked about though all men would be liars, God would be what? True, that the truth of who God is, if everyone stood against it, it would still be true. In that world, though everyone believed that they were good, though everyone believed that what Hitler did was good, it would still be true that it was evil. Right? That's subjective. That's what it means... For something to be objective. That it doesn't matter what you think. Or if all of you get together and think that it's good. It's still based in something outside of your feelings and emotions. Right? So the, the goodness that we're talking about. Is founded and based in God. So that for the sinner and for the lost. Which is the problem that we're dealing with here in scripture. The lost reject God. They seek not after God, so that when they do good, in their actions, they're denying the goodness of God. So which one overrides which one? The rejection of God is the most sinister of sins. The idea that you could be self-sufficient, or that you could do it on your own, when Every single breath that you take is given to you. That the very molecules within your body at any given moment are held together by this God that you would deny. That the very fact that you can feed your kids, that you can get up and that you can go to work and that you can do good, rests in the hands of a God that you have rejected? Tell me, tell me that that is not the very definition of evil. So that's what it is. And that's what sin does. It suppresses the truth about who He is and what He's done. 
See, and we think that we are self-sufficient. We think that we are the I am that I am. And not that we are held together in every single way, at every single moment, by His decree, by His demand. You are here today because He is. And if you reject that, sin, evil, no one does good, not even one. So what then, instead, their throat is an open grave, verse 13. They use their tongues to deceive. Everything that comes from their mouth, death and deceit. This is the problem of sin. Everything. When the sinner opens his mouth, it's like opening a grave. The venom of asps is under their lips. They carry poison in all that they do. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. I'm going to read that again, right? So we see what they don't do, right? We see the condition of the lost, that they are not righteous, they do not understand, they do not seek God, all have turned aside, they've all become useless, no one does good, not even one. Yet... We find as the result of sin, destruction is done instead. Instead of good, this is what we find instead. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruined misery. All the way and the way of peace they have not known. Who is this speaking of? Who is excluded? Who? No one? I want, I want you to understand something. He's quoting Old Testament scriptures here. When God says something, what weight does that carry? All the weight, right? All of it, and then some. So when God says something, right? God is a God of truth. So when God says something, can He say something untrue? So when God says something about people, and He uses blanket coverage type language to talk about people, what do we know about those statements? That they're true. So what does that mean about the innocent that would die? That there is no innocent. Are we comfortable with that? Are we comfortable with that? That there is no one innocent. I want to tell you something 
about the truth of God's Word is that it does not matter if you are comfortable with truth. Truth is truth. So what does this mean about those who will die today without the Gospel? There will be people who die today that have died already today who have not heard the Gospel. And we worry more about what we're going to do tomorrow at work than this problem. Is it not true? Like we worry more about what I've got to get done at work tomorrow than the people that I'm going to come in contact with at work tomorrow who may step forward into eternity tomorrow, or who may step forward today and we miss out on that opportunity tomorrow. What is the most important thing that we can do with our lives knowing this truth? Knowing the state of humanity. Knowing the state of the lost that we will come in contact with tomorrow. What is the most important thing that we can do? They're not seeking God, friends. They're not seeking after Him. They have all turned away. What is the most important thing that we can do? Share the Gospel. Boldly. We must know the Gospel. We must know it. We must make it a priority to know it more and more. And we must share it. I fear that many of you feel that you don't know the Gospel enough to go out and share it. I fear that that's a fear you have that's hindering you and holding you back. I want to tell you, with my dying breath if it needs be, that when we get done with this book, that will not be the case. When we get done with this book, I don't want you to forget this truth. We spent all that time in Ecclesiastes and all that time leading up to this point right here because we're about to get into some amazing stuff. We're about to get into some stuff that is blow your mind amazing. That though we would not seek God, He sought after us. And I don't want you to get so caught up in that that you forget their problem. I want you to be at home with this problem. You knew it well. Some of you may know it all too well. When you feel confident to preach the Gospel, don't forget it. Don't forget the problem. They will not seek Him. And if they don't seek Him, they'll never find Him. So if we do not preach it to them, they will never know it. And the blood will be on us. So let's not forget there's a problem that the Gospel is working to solve in their lives. If you will preach it to them. And not be ashamed of it, whether it costs you your job or whether it costs you your life.
And I look, and I don't know, I don't, I, I, maybe God sends out missionaries from here. I don't know. Jacobia, I'm praying for you, man. <laughs> maybe it sent you. <laughs> and some of you may lose your lives at the hands of the ones that you're taking the gospel to. I want you to know that none of it will be in vain. That this is something worth living for, certainly something worth dying for. The most important thing that you can do is have a heart for these people because they don't know their condition. And they love their condition. They don't know that they need the Gospel. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I want, I want, you, to, I want you to know this is, this, this is the most frightening. It's the most frightening passage Knowing what I've told you. Knowing what you've seen in God's Word. To know that you're a sinner and to stand before God. What should that do? Fear should be your first thought. Because God is holy and you are not. Yet the problem is that the depravity of the sinful condition of humanity is such that it has gone so far that it does not even know that it should fear God. Sin is that much of a problem. And that's why in the preaching of the Gospel, we cannot neglect the problem of sin because sin is a problem. And it's not popular, and it's not fun to hear, and it's certainly not fun to speak in front of people. But it's a problem. And we need something. We know what that something is. What is it? We know what's coming. Right? We know what's a few verses down from where we're at now. They don't. So why are we not going to them? Why are we so comfortable sitting? Why? Why? Verse 19. Now we know. And here's the second point of review. This is what the law was given for. This is the purpose of the law. This is the purpose that the law plays in the lives of the lost and even in the lives of the saved, right? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So what does the law do? When you see yourself compared to what holiness and righteousness looks like. I want, I want, I want to tell you something. When, when you go, and Dustin did a good job last week, was it last week when you went through the Old Testament? We see a lot of what we would call atrocities in the Old Testament. And I want to tell you, 
I want to tell you that when we look at God's Word, not only does our sinfulness show us how not only does God's Word show us how sinful we are, but our reaction to God's action shows us how sinful we are. Right? I want you to follow me here. We look at places like where God's running rampant through the promised land. And He's got some very harsh things for sin. And we look at that and we say, I'm better than that. Right? That's the sinful reaction to that. That we would have done it better than God. When we look at God's Word, not only are we reproved by it, but our mind and the state of our mind is made clear by it. Because we look at those things and it's like, that is foolishness. That is foolishness. Why would you do it like that? You are foolish if you think that God is foolish. So when you look at God's Word, this is going on so that your mouth may be stopped so that when you stand and when the whole world stands before God, they stand accountable. What in the world does that mean? To stand accountable. There is a day of reckoning when you will be held accountable for what you do or do not do. And I pray that on that day you stand by the one who is good. The only one who is good. Because if you don't, let me tell you, No one does good, not even one. Verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means that the law was not intended to justify you. The law was not intended to justify you. So when you live today, Christian, when you live today, do not think that the law will justify you before God. Or your keeping of it. Because you will not be justified. What does it say? For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since... Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And knowledge of sin does not save you from sin. The problem of sin is huge. And the solution to it must be huge. And we'll get to that next time. I want us to close in prayer. Lord, thank You for this day, for Your many, many, many wonderful blessings. I pray, Lord, that uh, as I open Your Word, that um, that I always am true to the Scripture, um, that You would, by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, uh, move in my heart and my life and the life of my church, that uh, You would reprove us, that You would 
sanctify us more and more by it, uh, that you would use me and, and use each of us in whatever way you've set out before us in this life, Lord. I pray, Lord, and I am so thankful. I mean, you know the prayers that have been laid down from the first day that you called me to preach, looking forward to to this day and and all that we did through the book of Ecclesiastes and all that we've done now in the opening of the book of Romans. And here we are. Lord, I cannot wait for next time. Lord, this has been such a heavy and weighty burden. So many messages seeming so confrontational. Lord, I pray that you have been preparing us. Lord, I pray that uh, as we step foot next time into the beautiful work, the beautiful work of grace and the work that Christ has done, that you would embed it within us, that you would write it on our hearts, Lord, that we would be made familiar with it, that we would be emboldened by it, that you would be shaping and molding us into into a fearless people, into a fearless church who who seeks to make your name great, who seeks to carry your name to the places that it has not yet been heard seeks to take it each and every day into our workplaces and into our families. Lord, that that you would work through the study of this book in us in such a way as that all those fears that might have hindered us or hampered us up to this point from sharing the gospel, that those walls would be torn down. Lord, that, that the truth of the weight of the sinful problem that exists would weigh so heavy on us that we could never preach the gospel without tears. Lord, that whoever might hear this word and this truth, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in them. That you would change us. Continue changing us. There's so much work that needs to be done in me. And I rest in you that you will complete that work. I thank you for Christ. The beauty of the cross. It's in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.